Welcome once again to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. hey Hey, Corey. Hey, great to be back again. So we're trying to get to know each other. Yeah. And so I figure I'll, I got a, a deep, my own personal DC story. I moved out to work for former Congressman Chris Cannon. Remember him? Yes. Yeah. Good man. And, uh, you know, he's still around. So I went out to be uh, an, an intern. I was an intern in his district office in Provo. And then I moved out to DC to become an intern for him in uh, 2004, 2005. And my, uh, I was, I had only been there about three weeks. And remember, uh, you know, 9-11 was still fresh in everybody's memory and the, the anthrax mailings and everything was all, all fresh in everybody's memory. So I was a, I was a pretty brand new intern. It's probably about the third week or something. Each office had at that time, these radios where the Capitol police could communicate with the staff. And all of a sudden it just started blaring and they started yelling into the mics coming over the walkie talkie saying like, get out of the building, get out right now. So wow. we're like, oh, okay. So we hop up. I, I've only been, I've only experienced these fire drills or whatever, where it's just kind of a drill. So you're just kind of like moseying along. Okay. So we stand up and we start walking out. We walk into the hallway. We get to the s- stairs because they turn off the elevators and people are just white as a ghost and just running. And this, the guy that I was with, I was, we're all of a sudden like, oh man, maybe this is real. So we started, we started running down the stairs too. We were on the seventh floor, yeah, seventh floor of the Longworth building. So we had to go down seven flights. And so you're, you're jetting down as fast as you can, run, 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 run. And the Capitol police are just looking at us, get out, get out now. And we're like, oh my gosh. So we're hustling, hustling, hustling all the way down the stairs. And we get outside and they, they tell us to gather like on the street over by these restaurants. And here we are, like th- thousands of staffers. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is even easier for the terrorists to get us because now we're all just in a big group outside. Exactly. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. But it turned out in the end that some some old man had, he was flying a, his own personal plane and... Oh, I remember this. Either he didn't know what he was doing or he decided that he was going to give it a shot, but they told him to turn around and head the other way. And so he was still heading our direction. Ultimately, he, he did yeah. turn back and I, I actually never even found out what happened with that whole thing, but... That was my welcome to Washington. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he was a terrorist, but that's fascinating. It, it kind of reminds me, a couple of years ago, um, in the aftermath, I think, of the Parkland shooting, I was getting a lot of parents who were emailing me saying, hey, we need metal detectors at our schools and everything. And I'm, I'm like, really? Because you want, like, hundreds of students to line up every morning and every day at lunch, you know, to wait to pass through a metal detector? Because if I'm the terrorist... <laughs> You know, I just wait outside till I have, you know, a hundred no kids kid. lined up and then start shooting there. I mean, there's just no easy answers. And I, I don't want to reopen that. I don't want to pick at that scab, but there's just, when it comes to schools uh, and security, there's, there's really just no easy answers. All right. So, Hey, I don't know if you knew this, but Garth Brooks was in town uh, recently. Did you go to that concert? I did, and it was fantastic. It was hey, so I good. Didn't, I didn't see you there. I looked. I, you know, <laughs> you were, the, yeah, we were both there with uh, fifty thousand of our closest friends. So, yeah, and literally physically close <laughs> because it was like a mosh pit to get in there 
at least yeah. when I when I entered, they just kind of let the floodgates in, and I've never been so squeezed and pressed in my whole life. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I hate to joke about this, but if if you hadn't been vaccinated, you probably pretty much have COVID. Had you gone to that? Yeah, yeah. My, <laughs> my wife is saying like, you know, oh my gosh, we spent a year and a half social distancing, and now I've got like everybody's body parts just pressed right into my face. <laughs> it was awesome though, and you could tell that Garth himself was just so relieved to be out outside. And yeah, he seemed like he he seems like he really enjoys coming to Salt Lake so much so that he even announced. I think he put this on Twitter. You did, but uh, he even announced that. He wanted to end his his concert tour. Or at least come back before the end of his tour last year, which he said he was going to get in trouble for because he hadn't talked to anybody. But yeah, and it was my first Garth Brooks concert, and um, he puts on quite a show. I, I was, it was amazing. Was, I don't know that there's a greater showman in our day than Garth Brooks. It totally was fun agree. to be there. It was really fun to be there. Super fun. All right, well, on a less upbeat note, it's been a tough summer of heat and drought. Our lakes and reservoirs are in bad shape. I just was up at Pineview in uh, near Huntsville and the water is like far less than half. It's amazing. You have to walk a mile to get to get to the water and the, the ramp uh, boat launch. I mean, it seems like it goes on forever, but, and they're, they're releasing more water from flaming gorge to prevent a shutdown of Hoover dam because the Colorado river is so low. Todd, it seems like drought is part of our life as Westerners, but this time around, it seems pretty serious. Yeah, I think it is pretty serious. Um, I understand that Great Salt Lake has now hit um, an all-time low, at least since you know since 1847 when when we've been paying attention. But um, uh, I, and I, you know, I don't know that this is the worst drought that we've had in terms of rainfall. But I, you know, I think it's also important to know that we're a lot less of the water is making it into the Great Salt Lake and other lakes because of development we've we're siphoning that off before it reaches the lakes. And so it's very concerning. I know one of the main marinas at um, Lake Powell, they can't launch boats there anymore because yeah. it's dried up. So, Dangling rope, yeah. Yeah, I, I know um, my secondary water where I live, you know, usually we used to have it till October 15th and then it was October 1st. Now they're saying they're going to turn it off on September 1st. And so, mm. um, and if we, if we don't get a lot of snow this summer, we may not have any secondary water next year. So, yeah, it's, it's getting very serious, and there's a lot of solutions to that. I, I, I still believe that Utah has plenty of water. I think we just need to, to work a little bit more on water conservation. We, we use per capita, I think, two to three times as much water per person as any other any of our surrounding state neighbors. Yeah, so there's definitely a role for us to play as owners, homeowners, and watering our lawns and so forth, and obviously so many cities are cutting back and creating restrictions about how much. I mean... Governor Cox also, he was pushing back on the idea that, that farmers are using too much. But it is the case that, what, 80-something percent? Of- 85% of our water is going to farms. And, of course, farms play an important role in our society. And, um, you know, my my father-in-law, who I dearly loved, uh, he was a dairy farmer and, and grew a lot of alfalfa hay. But I understand that that alfalfa hay just uh, takes up so much of our water. And so, you know, I think everything should be on the table. We need to look at, you know, what makes sense moving forward. And a lot of people, you know, I did mention development and I, I need to point this out because it's not um, counter, it's it's not intuitive to everyone. But, you know, if, if you replace a farm with a subdivision, normally that subdivision, even though people are watering their grass, they're not using more water than the farm did. In fact, they're often using less water because they're yeah. not growing crops. And so, right. you know, when, when we talk about water, there's a replacement concept there that uh, the water that used to go to the farm can then go to the subdivision. So 
it's not like every time we build a house, we, uh, because most of the time we're building houses where the farms used to be, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, that's where we just bought a house on a, a former huge, uh, farm acreage. And I mean, frankly, most of the houses around here are smashed together. Don't even have yards, you know, townhouses yeah, and yeah, that sort right. of thing. So, so there's nothing to water. All right. Well, dr- drought is not the only major challenge we face right now. As you know, I know an issue on the minds of so many Utahns. It's been on our minds and we can actually afford, you know, a decent house, but housing affordability is so tough. People are getting priced out and not just along the Wasatch front. You know, this is happening all over the state. I mean, I, do, I was just talking to a woman who said that she decided to buy in Scipio and she, she you know, she works in Lehigh. You're like, my goodness, that is a drive. That's a long drive. But, uh, Salt Lake Tribune had a good article about how folks down in Moab, too, have nowhere to live. The recreation business, as we know right now, is absolutely booming, but you can't employ workers if if they have nowhere to live. Yeah. So I know the legislature did some things on this earlier this year. What are your thoughts on this, Todd? Like, is there a role for state policy? I think there is a role for the state, but the government is not going to build us out of this housing crisis. So the government, you know, should not be in the business of housing. Now, we can try to incentivize cities to do the right thing when it comes to their planning and zoning and we can try to incentivize you know developers to 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 do things that will help the economy but i do think that um utah has gone through a a bit of a maturation stage in the last couple of years and people have discovered us a a lot of people want to blame everyone from california moving here and we've had a little bit of, of that but a lot of it is just our own homegrown kids and grandkids they they want a place of their own and so, um, you know, you're going to see a lot more high density housing in the future. I mean, just a couple of years ago, um, you know, a lot of the cities were surrounding where I live, you know, they they were still saying you have to have five acres or you have to have two acres to get a building permit. And th- those policies um, are not going to survive scrutiny uh, moving forward because um, th- th- I think those days, at least along the Wasatch Front, are gone. Yeah. Well, you can blame me to some extent. We came from DC and bought a house. <laughs> so there, yeah. there are some of those. Yeah, but uh, you're, you've got Utah roots. And so I, I yeah. you know, a lot of people will leave uh, temporarily and, and then bounce back. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty much what we've done here. But looking forward, it seems like, I mean, cities, I live in Lehigh and, and Lehigh has moved to allow more uh, English basements, you know, the mother-in-law suites. That's something that can be done. But those are called accessory dwelling units or ADUs, and the legislature's kind of forced that onto cities for good or bad. Yeah, and so I, I mean, I think that's there's a rub, right? Because if left up to most cities, they're probably not going to do it. And you know, as conservatives, I have mixed feelings about the idea of having the state tell cities what they can and can't do. You know, when, from a federalism perspective. My, my, and I've been on a city council, so I'm sensitive to those issues. But um, a lot of city council members are grateful when the state kind of steps in and, and makes it a little easier for them because um, when it comes to planning and zoning issues, the neighbors will show up with pitch, pitchforks, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I've got a nephew that serves on a city council in Utah County and, and the opposition is real, but it's also an issue uh, quite frequently where the developers know the law better than the city council members do. And if they vote down a development that meets all their criteria, they're, they're just voting themselves a lawsuit that not only are they going to lose, yeah. but the development's going to come in anyway. Right, right, right. Well, traditionally, when it comes to government policy for housing, the federal government at least has put its weight behind kind of the demand side, and that is to say, giving people money to to pay to afford housing and that sort of thing. And I think you just addressed that a little bit, but it's it's also problematic because it'll raise the the price of houses. I mean, we in the D.C. area when we live there, we experience this because obviously in the military you get housing allowance and 
every time that there was an increase in the housing allowance, essentially all of the the rentals went up by that much money, right? If you're you're a major and you can afford X number, you know, let's say it's thirty two hundred dollars a month, which I think is close to that right now, then suddenly every house is thirty two hundred dollars a month. So if if you're not in the military getting your basic housing allowance, you're just getting priced out so quickly. Yeah, and that, that's just an example of when the government st- steps in to sort of give people the money. In this case, it makes sense because it's military; they're, they're employees of the federal government, obviously. But but even when you're talking about vouchers or or whatever else, so it, there's on the one hand you you can make an argument that it's a positive, but on the other hand, you can quickly see how it becomes problematic. And I know I've heard from Hello Force Base. This was a few years ago, but. You know the pay for some of the enlisted were so was so low that they could qualify for some, you know, if they're married to qualify for some, you know, welfare benefits. And you know, wow, you either, wow. So. All right, so um, we've got a federal infrastructure bill. Uh, Mitt Romney's been very busy back in D.C. trying to negotiate a bipartisan bill with Democrat senators Joe Manchin and. Christine uh, Cinema um, seems like they've been working on this thing for a few months now. Do you think it's actually going to happen? Well, they just had a, a big breakthrough, announced a, a deal with a bipartisan collection of senators, and they had a vote in the Senate that that passed the the first kind of level of um, scrutiny. Scrutiny. Yep. So that's uh, getting the um, vote on the motion to proceed. You need sixty votes for that. So. 15 Republicans joined, including Senator Mitt Romney, and he's as pictured on the front cover of the New York Times this morning. We're recording this on the 29th, a little bit later than we normally do, but I think there's a lot to be uh, to be enthusiastic about. We finally have uh, some bipartisanship happening in Washington. It's a deal that at least we understand is going to be paid for. I think all of those quote-unquote pay-fors are going to be scrutinized. We're going to have to take a close look to see if they're legitimate or not. But I do say, you know, kudos to Senator Romney for, for playing a role in this. Hopefully it doesn't mean that it gives uh, Democrats a free license on, uh, on their next partisan-only bill to, to go even bigger and bolder because they no longer have to pay for infrastructure. You know, Corey, I don't know if you know this, but there's a, a conference in town this week at the Grand America called, um, it's the American Legislative Exchange Council, so like Governor DeSantis is here and a lot of other elected officials. <clears throat> in fact, Governor DeSantis spoke at the Grand America for a big luncheon yesterday. And um, it's interesting to me because as I've been rubbing shoulders with legislators from other states, as soon as they find out I'm from Utah, they all ask me the same thing. What do you think about Mitt Romney? Mm, <laughs> and yeah. so, um, you know, of course, you know, tr- the, you know, the Trump, Trump doesn't like him and he voted for impeachment twice and all that. But it is interesting that we, um, you know, we, we have that contrast between Mike Lee and, and Mitt Romney. But, um, you know, I, I've been telling people, you know, I, 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 I like both of our senators. I think they're very different. I think they're both trying to do their best job and vote their conscience. And, and that's kind of what I want to see, even though I may not agree with every vote. I, I want to see people who are principled and, and, and doing what they think is right. Right. And somebody who cares about the state. Because I think it's very easy to be the senator from America and be yeah. on TV all the time. I mean, this is where I give a lot of credit to Senator Bennett, who I worked for, Bob Bennett. I mean, he he was so dedicated to the state of Utah, and to me, that was that was just hugely important and impressive. Yeah, he was. Um, and you know, it's interesting. You know, Mitt Romney, when he was running for president, the you know the media would 
have you believe that he was the worst person in the world because he tied a dog to his roof once and and uh, and, and and may have bullied a, a gay kid in you know in, in high school you know fifty years ago, but but whenever he votes with uh, Joe Biden or or it, whenever he opposes Trump, uh, all of a sudden the media has this strange new respect. Oh, he's a hero. Yeah, he's the greatest person in the world and. Um, you know, it, it's just so interesting that the double standard that we get from our national media when it comes to um, Republicans and conservatives. Absolutely. It really bugs me. All right, let's talk some political buzz. Redistricting se- season is upon us. COVID uh, has set back the timeline a little bit for the census. So the states are still waiting impatiently for the census numbers to arrive. Todd, there's a ton to talk about here, and I think we should on future episodes. Well, let's, let's definitely tackle what to expect for the congressional districts and the state legislative districts. I think that's going to be really fun. Yeah, I think it's important for people to know we're, we're getting the data. So the census was delayed because of COVID, so the data is delayed. But we're going to get it in waves. And so the first data you know that, that we get is the congressional districts, and, and then we don't get the data like for the, the Senate, the state Senate and the state House districts until this fall. And so most of the focus, of course, most of the attention from the public is on those congressional house districts. Of course, the Senate districts are set by state boundaries, the the U.S. Senate districts. So those don't change. But um, the question is, is, you know, Burgess Owen narrowly defeated uh, Ben McAdams, who even more narrowly defeated Mia Love. So I think the real focus in Utah is what happens to that district? Do they make it slightly more Republican uh, because, you know, uh, Jim Matheson won it once and, and Ben McAdams won it once. And if so, where do those votes come from? Do they come from Blake Moore's district? Do they come from John Curtis's district or, or Chris Stewart's district or a combination of all three? So, um, you know, Utah does have a, a, little, a fairly contorted congressional district map. If you've looked at it, you know, you kind of have to close one eye and stand on your head to, uh-huh. for it to make sense. But um, but we don't know what the new one, the new map is going to look like yet. But my guess is it's probably going to look a lot like the old map. That, that's just a guess that I have. Well, so can you give us some color on how the process is going to work between we have now this nonpartisan redistricting, redistricting commission? Well, it's not nonpartisan. I mean, Rob Bishop's on it, right? Um, but we do have, I would call it a semi-bipartisan independent redistricting committee. They, they don't have any power um, because the state constitution that's the power to draw to, to, to do redistricting with the legislature. Uh, but they, they, they will produce, I think, two maps and the legislature will look at those and, and, and maybe we'll adopt those and, and maybe we won't. Um, and, the, and when I say two maps, that's for each race. So you've got the state school board race that nobody focuses on. You've got the state house, the state Senate, and then, of course, the, the house congressional districts, which is what everyone focuses on. So it's my understanding that, that they're going to produce two maps for each of those four races. And, and, and then, so that would be a total of eight maps. And, and, um, and then also Corey, just like 10 years ago, the legislature is putting out a tool where anyone uh, in the public can go online and they can start drawing their own boundaries with, with all of the, you know, the confines and the requirements built in. What a lot of people don't realize is we draw four districts in Utah and they are equal in population to to one another, usually within two or three people. So that that's how precise the software is. That's pretty cool. So do we think that the, the public, if they submit their own maps, that that's going to make any difference or that's just sort of something that people can do to... Well, I don't think it did last time. 
and and the 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 craziest thing i have a lot of conversations with uh redistricting and so you know first of all a lot of democrats will say hey we we get about 30 percent in the statewide elections that means we should have one congressional district right. well, let me just challenge that because if if you get 30 percent in every race that means you lose every race by you know 70 to 30. and republicans in massachusetts um get about 35 percent of statewide uh, elections and they have zero congressmen from a gop congress people elected from massachusetts and so um but what i hear a lot of democrats saying on twitter and other things is because Democrats vote, you know, about one third of the state votes Democrat, that the legislature should draw a district that a Democrat could win. Well, that is by definition gerrymandering. Right, and absolutely. so yeah. I'm constantly telling Democrats, I said, you're not against gerrymandering. You're just against the Republicans doing it. They're like, no, I'm against gerrymandering. I just want a district that the Democrats will win every time. Well, that is gerry- that's political gerrymandering. And most of our legal cases are, de- are dealing with racial gerrymandering which is um, which is illegal under our Constitution. But we don't have any Supreme Court decision from the U.S. Supreme Court saying that political gerrymandering is illegal. And remember, when the founding fathers wrote the Constitution, there were no political parties. So it's pretty hard to read the Constitution uh, as, as guaranteeing protections for political parties when they didn't yeah. exist in 1787. Yeah, and I mean, to, to your point about the nonpartisan or bipartisan independence of the redistricting commission, I mean, none of these across the country are are actually independent. So, I mean, ultimately yeah. it is, it is partisan to one degree or another. We should have more discussions on this too, because one of the, another critique I think of, of many folks is that gerrymandering both makes it, makes districts more uh, ideologically extreme while at the same time, it also blocks, as you just described, blocks Democrats or something in a, in a Republican state or Republicans in a Democratic state, which these two things are intention, right? If you, if you gerrymander to get more seats, you're almost, you're by definition, like stretching it a little bit versus trying to create a more ideologically pure district. Yeah, as, so as bad as people think it is here in Utah, I mean, Illinois, which doesn't even have the, you know, the data yet from the, the census, they, they've already announced their new districts and they're eliminating like 15 Republican seats. It is interesting to see what happens around the state, uh, around the different states. All right. That's all the time we have. All right. We'll be back next week, Corey. Thanks. Thanks.